Hi, and welcome to the Print Spaces podcast, Sell Out. If you're an artist, and I'm guessing you would like to dedicate 100% of your time to creating work and moving your career forward. If this describes you, then you're in the right place because we're going to take a tour of the skills and ideas out there to reach and grow your audience and shock horror to make money from your creativity. We've been experiencing firsthand by setting up Prince for Wildlife the effectiveness difference between traditional media and social media. We've been testing it. We've been working with traditional media and PR for years now, and we've been testing the results coming out of it and comparing them with the results coming out of our own social media audience. Mind-blowing difference. It's not even, it's not even, there's not even the runner-up here. It's social media that runs the show. That's P. Arts, who took a leap of faith in 2018 and left his career in commerce to go full-time as a photographer. Since then, his career path has been extraordinary, even despite the pandemic happening just as he was getting going. Not only is his personal career going from strength to strength, he also found the time to run one of the biggest and most successful online print sales that we at the Print Space have ever witnessed, all in aid of supporting wildlife conservation in Africa. He has amazing insights into print sales, marketing, and also how you can keep your career moving forward regardless of the obstacles that are thrown into your path. Welcome, P. Arts, and it's a real pleasure to have you here today. You've been someone that we've been working with now for a couple of years, and we've been hugely impressed with the trajectory of your career and what you've done with both Prince for Wildlife and your own work. And it's an absolute pleasure to have you on here. Likewise, Stuart. Thank you. I wanted to start, actually, just by asking you, how did you get started in photography? Did, because you focus a lot on wildlife photography. And I was wondering, was it the sort of subject matter first and then you started taking photographs or were you a photographer first and the subject matter, you know, found you? Yeah, good first question. We have to dig in time a little to understand the answer. See, I've been shooting since 15 years now, of which the last three to four years, predominantly in what people refer to wildlife photography. So in essence, I'm not a wildlife photographer. I'm not an educated photographer in the first place, but I'm definitely not. And I wouldn't consider myself a wildlife photographer. But by looking at my work in the, of the past three, four years, you could argue that I am one, right? So in essence, I'm just a photographer and I'm really struggling in putting a finger on what kind of photographer I am. Because if we travel back in time to, let's say, 2004, it's about when it started. I was predominantly interested in human interest stories and travel photography. And not at all in landscapes, not at all in nature, not at all in wildlife. So that all came, came second, that was all secondary, which some, somehow grew upon me as I grew older, as well as I moved with the trends as well. So back in 2015, it was very trendy to shoot landscapes and put them on Instagram and get a lot of likes and you would just become famous overnight pretty much. So I've been part of all those trends and those faces, but that was an opening for me to temporarily step out of my comfort zone as like a, because in, in essence, I'm really a kind of educated on the street. Like I wouldn't call myself a street photographer, but I've been shooting on the streets for many years and stepping out of that comfort zone of shooting on the streets and suddenly moving with that trend and shooting, starting to shoot landscapes and nature stories and essentially wildlife stories was a great opportunity to just broaden my skill set. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to, if you would ask me what kind of photographer, how do you see yourself? 
I don't really have an answer. But yeah, at the moment, I'm shooting lots of stories. I, I call them coex coexistence stories that happen at the intersection of nature, wildlife, and human interest. So was it, how did the sort of, how did the first sort of move into the sort of nature and landscape type of thing happen? Is it just about being open to opportunities that come your way and being being flexible in terms of, okay, I'm going to go and shoot here because there's an opportunity here. Was it a case of just taking a camera with you and shooting what you saw and then looking back at it and going, wow, yeah, that I actually really like that and I'm really enjoying shooting that. Or was it some other sort of driver like putting stuff out there and getting really good feedback on it? How did that sort of move from being a human interest photographer, a street photographer into the most recent sort of yeah. incarnation happened? Yeah, so in the first place, I always, well, it's very, it's a cliche answer, but it's, it's very true in my case. Photography for me is all about connection, right? About con building a connection, not only with your subject, but with the environment you operate in, building a connection with a long-term story you're working on, building a connection with the people that actually view your work. So photography is all about that for me, about building connections with whatever you, you name it. And I always had a weak spot ever since the beginning for, let's call it indigenous culture and indigenous wisdom. So I think that is how my human interest was sparked and especially in an ancient kind of fashion. So in the early days in the first years, I, tend, I was going, I was visiting India three, four times a year because I felt a really strong connection with the ancient history of that place. And that was for me, like a ticket into more curiosity and like an entrance into using that camera as the window into a world that was very new to me and very hard to understand at times, but also increasingly interest, interesting to visually capture. So it became the viewfinder became my way of, I always call it a magnifying glass in a quest for finding beauty. See, as a photographer, I'm not your typical photojournalist, but I would rather see myself as a, real, a realist, but an aesthetical version of re realism. So I always try to frame things as they are, but in my own aesthetical representation of it. And uh, yeah, so the early days really were inviting me to, to work on that narrative. And I think, so back to the beginning of your question, I think when you spend lots of time in indigenous culture, you do start to see that those cultures are very interlinked with nature as well. And there is like a deep connection in between those two. So that was my entry into shooting more nature-driven stories and nature-based stories. And I can still see that now these days, like 15 years later, in the stories that are, that are really, well, every story I shoot is close to my heart, but the stories that are the closest to my heart is exactly about that dimension, about the combination between indigenous wisdom and how that is linked to, to the natural world and how we actually should conserve those traditions and could, should conserve that knowledge and wisdom into maybe modern ways of, of thinking. At what point did you become professional? This was your sort of sole sort of career and, and income. Yeah, so fully professional. It's 2022 now, and that happened in early 2018. So I never studied photography. I never studied any creative profession. I come from a commercial background. I started business. After my master's, I enrolled in a corporate traineeship and worked in a commercial company for eight years. In, in retail and commodity trading, which is like quite the opposite versus my life now. So I never really had that creative support from, 
from an educational point of view, but as a child, I was always drawing. As a child, I was always visualizing, conceptualizing, dreaming, lots and lots of dreaming about faraway places and cultures. And so that, in, in essence, that is, that, that's in, it, it, it's ingrained into my system. But I somehow disconnected along the way, just going headfirst into the rat race and wanting to become the next big CEO. And all of that happened over the course of 10 years until I started to figure out when I was like in my early 30s that I was really disconnecting from like my my I was losing my personal identity in some way. So then I decided it's time to to question your being. It's time to question your creative integrity. It's time to question what kind of photographer you actually are now and what do you want to become in the years to come? And the biggest question was, do I want to do this full time? Yes or no? And that decision I made in early 2018, I quit my job. We rented out our home in Amsterdam and me and my girlfriend left on a almost two year trip around the world to read, in my case, to rediscover that ident little identity crisis I was going through from a creative point of view, but also from a, from a career point of view, questioning what's next. And the outcome of this was not only the decision to go full time, but it was also my first book which launched in July, 2019. And that kind of was the start of, yeah, it was the start of a new phase in my life. Was it scary? Did you think as soon as you'd handed your notice in, did you think, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> scary is an understatement, but uh, yeah, it's very scary. And in many different ways, also in ways I didn't previously anticipate it on. But yeah, I'm a big control freak and I never really allowed myself to just step out of that control zone. But the moment I realized, and of course now looking backwards is always easier than looking, looking ahead of you. But when I look backwards now, I really regret that I didn't surrender to not having any control any earlier, if you know what I mean. Because mm. somehow looking back, it all worked out. And, yeah. I, and now I'm I, these days, 2022, creative decisions, but also commercial decisions. I take them increasingly more and more based on the trust that the dots will somehow connect in the future. My younger self, one advice back to 2018, it would for sure be about go for it and just trust that it will work out for you because your path is laid out anyways. We have this thing in the UK. I'm not sure if you have this in Holland, it's, it's been called the great resignation. Hmm. So lots of people leaving yeah. their jobs. Because it usually takes some sort of life-changing, earth-shattering event, either personally or, or collectively as a society, for people to go, oh my God, what am I doing? Those things that I've been putting off for years and years, which you're always going to put off. It's yeah. always going to be next year. And it takes that kind of moment for people to go, I'm actually going to go and do it. Yeah. And it's, was there any kind of moment for you, particular moment? See, I was just completely burned out on on not being able to make it to make that decision. So I've been thinking about and dreaming up all different scenarios in all the years before that great resignation happened to me. But I never really had the balls to make this make the decision until my body was like, dude, you have to stop. So now it's time to make up your mind and think about what you really want in life. So my body was a wake up call. So I was, I was just put me out of business for like almost a year and I had to recover and I went through lots of different ways of healing. And then essentially early 2018, I was strong enough and had enough confidence to just go for it. And I think this wake up call comes in many different shapes and forms. It's very personal. And then, but my experience was very physically. And by the time I was recovered, I was feeling stronger than ever to just go for it. 
it's amazing the amount of people that I talk to who have taken that 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 leap of faith. I think I've rarely heard anyone say they regret it. That's right. Actually, when I was in full recovery mode, people were telling me people that went through it themselves, like this is you're going to be this is a moment in your life. In eternity, you're going to be grateful for the fact that it actually happened. And I was always laughing at these people. Actually, now, three, four years later, I'm starting to understand and I'm starting to sense why people said that to me for the first time now. When you take that sort of step and you're then now focusing 100 percent on 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 your creative practice in your case photography but whether it's photography painting illustration mm -hmm. whatever that you have that focus gives you ability to take it to another level and also there's that sense of where well, you're committed now so you're gonna yeah. have to make it work it reminds me i think was it cortez when they landed in mexico i think it was and they were i think 600 men and faced with the tens of thousands of Aztec armies, he ordered the boats to be burnt that got them over there. And he said, and they burnt and scuffled their own boats. He said, the only way you're getting back now is if you succeed here. Yeah. There's no, there's no retreat. And I often think about that story in terms of that level of commitment of, of if you're really going to go for something, then you've really just got to yeah. commit to it and believe it's going to happen. Yeah, I totally agree. And the pressure was on from day one. But there is one thing I want to add to that. And that is, I think, important to mention when you talk about advice to people that are going to through similar challenges in life. And that's something I always address for me. And I think for the majority of the people, it should be a gradual transition. And it's not at all like cold turkey approach, right? Many people believe that starting a dream or building a new future or changing your life is like a one day to another event. Whereas in reality, it's, it takes, often it takes years and years of years, sometimes even subconsciously already transitioning into that new phase. So one advice I always give people that ask me, like, how did you do it? Is there tips? Is there tricks? Is there shortcuts to just turning your life upside down and starting all over again? Is slow down, embrace the speed, make it gradual, make it slow and steady. And if you look back, you'll see that all those small steps they all make sense to you and i think people especially these days in this social media driven world they all want it to be quick and quick and effective if i learned one thing over the past six seven years is embracing the slowness of it all has been the main driver of my success now okay so don't burn all the boats just no. burn them one at a time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly okay so You've got a fantastic following on Instagram for your work. How did that come about? Yeah, so I can tell you the romanticized story or the real version. <laughs> Both. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a, I have a love and hate relationship like many creative people these days with social media, but I've been having that already actually since the beginning. And to be quite honest, I never, in the beginning, I never really had a plan. If I'm looking back now, I would do things completely different. So sometimes people also consult or ask about like the 10 tips for building a social media audience. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to line them up for you, right? Because I think the most important tip these days is to create for yourself and not for anyone else. There's just so much social, so, social pressure in not even in young communities, but in all communities 
to obey to the rules of whatever, your friends, society, church, your parents, your girlfriend, your kids. But if you go inwards and you go back to the essence of creating in the first place for yourself, and if you believe in your work, it's much easier to radiate that energy and that spirit to the, to the rest of the world. So that would be my number one and actually the only tip I would give about how to build an audience. But if I go back in time, for me, I started Instagram, in which has been the foundation, my foundational social media outlet. I started in 2014, which was actually two years too late. If you would, would, would want to be famous overnight, I think 2012, 2013 was like the time of the su suggested user list. So with one single suggested user post, you could just gain thousands and thousands of followers in a day. So I came right after that, but I quickly understood, and I told you in the, in the beginning of this uh, conversation about the power of landscape photography back in the day. That was like a face that I would always refer to as tiny human, big landscape, right? We're talking 2014, 15, preferably tiny human is wearing a yellow jacket and a red beanie. And I went through it all. And that was the time when I was experimenting with going to all these trendy places like Iceland and Faroe Islands and Namibia and well, you name them, all the places that have cool mountains and big open landscapes. And we would just go and hike and shoot and create stuff that was like really sensitive. And that gave me within a time frame of not even 12 months, that gave me like a boost from zero to a hundred thousand followers. And wow. that, that, and, but so the first thing I was doing back in the day was dreaming up if this is the rate now, so where's it going to stop? But that's, that stopped pretty quickly in 2016, 17, the trend was over. I was, I started to personally de deviate and disconnect from the work I shot that was way too trend-based. So another advice to young starting photographers, disconnect from the trends, but we can, that's maybe for a different conversation. But so in, in 2016, 17, I started to disconnect from what I've been building and building online. And that made like that, that caused an instant stop to me growing in terms of numbers. But by rediscovering my personal and creative identity, by moving back into the human interest space, I was losing the numbers, but I was gaining confidence in making that next creative step and the next step and the next step. So essentially, one thing I can tell people about numbers is they're not important because the best, and that's easy for someone to say that oh, I have substantial numbers, but if I learned one thing, it's that you rather have 1,000 people that buy anything you sell than 100,000 people that swipe on all day for free and then leave without buying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the trick in this whole industry is to convert people that view your work into people that buy your work. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we always say actually that if we look down our top sellers list, then it's actually the people with the highest engagement and not the highest headline number. We have someone in the top five who has 20,000 followers, <laughs> but those 20,000 are really super engaged in his work. So yeah, I completely agree with that. I want to ask you a little bit as well, because obviously you make your own work and that's evolving over time, as you said, but also alongside that in 2020, it was during the pandemic, you went off and did this incredible side project, Prince for Wildlife. And it's astounding where that's got to in 
just the two years and i think this year is the third year i think last year you raised one point uh, well over a million dollars for african parks it's we're always saying to creatives and photographers that it's really important to have those kind of side projects and other ways that you're engaging with your subject matter and with the industry and this is more than a side project though is it's become a huge a huge thing in itself how did that come about how did that actually start yeah i can say a lot of bad things about instagram but i have to acknowledge that one of the most beautiful aspects of social media these days is community building right there is no such there is no other platform in the world then let's go, let's generalize Instagram, the social media as social media. Impossible. Go back in time 20 years ago. If you want to open a photography gallery, you've been there, done that. It was a lot. It's a long way. It's a long road. And these days, young kids can just open up their work to the world, get people to view it, build a community, discuss, get feedback, make friends for life, and even marry and get kids. I see it happening all the time. So... That is the beauty of building a network and an audience or a community online. And when COVID happened in 2020 and my agenda was just completely wiped and like I lost 95% of my work in the first six months, wow. like field work as well as work at home, the whole world went into lockdown. I do 90% of my work in Africa, that whole airspace was closed and I could immediately not only feel the personal loss but i could also feel and very well relate to the chaos that was happening in africa and there was lots of debate happening in april may 2020 whether generally people would argue that it's not it's actually good for the planet if we stop flying for a bit and it's actually good for nature because they, nature can breathe again and there people just stop moving and we, the earth can heal that was like the first general consensus but after talking to some people, I just, I could just ride, I came back from Africa right before this whole thing started. And I was still into conversations with people working for several NGOs. And you could sense that that was chaotic, right? Tourism came to a, like an abrupt stop. And tourism, tur tourism is like the number one funding engine of all conservation in Africa. It's the number one funding engine of so many important community work that is being done. And it's the number one engine behind protecting species on the verge of going extinct and disappearing forever. And not necessarily the impact for the species was very immediate, but for the people protecting those species and the people protecting those parks and protecting those wildlife zones. So by just simply talking to people in Kenya, by talking to people in Uganda and Botswana back in the day in early 2020, I could immediately sense that I wanted to, I, support was needed. And on, at the very same time, I know that I knew that I was going to be out of business at least six months. Well, essentially that turned out to be like almost 18 months. And I just wanted to, from a personal point of view, I just wanted to be relevant within the space without actually being in Africa. And then I met Marion, which is now my, my, my already for three years, my co-founding partner within Prince for Wildlife. We met online. We just started a discussion about what is the actual impact this is having on Africa. And we really quickly discovered that we both had the same desire to make an impact that is going beyond or stories beyond our photography. I was dreaming up like scenarios already for years. Like how can I really make an impact that is about more than a magazine piece or more than like a print collection. And then we decided to just do it. And Prince for Wildlife was born. And I'll never forget the first week of launching the first campaign after three months of voluntarily building it without really having a plan. 
and we were making we was just setting targets in like a excel spreadsheet and we were like yeah 100k a hundred thousand dollars that would be like the dream and we just did that in the first 24 hours and then we just re we just look at it, looked at each other and we're like, yeah. So if this is the start, what is happening? What's the, where is it going to end? So the first campaign ended at 660,000, which was six times our initial target. And then we decided after experiencing this spirit and that global support we got from people that never heard about this crisis before that never, but also from people within the industry, conservationists, photographers, people, art buyers, we had such a diverse group of of people like you and me. And I think that was the power of the campaign in the beginning and still is by offering hundred dollar prints. We made wildlife art from very experienced and known photographers available for regular, normal people. A hundred dollars is still a lot of money for the majority of people in the world, but we made wildlife art accessible to a big audience. And 100% of the proceeds went to African parks, which Marion and I were from the first minute, very, very sure that there was actually only one organization that, that should benefit from this because we deeply believe in their philosophy. Yeah. So that's how it started. And then we came back with a second edition last year, which did 1.1 million in four weeks, Incredible. putting the total number on 1.8 million now, and we're going live in on August 28 this year with the third edition. It's is that leave out the target? We don't really have a target now because we're disconnecting from that financial narrative and we're going deeper in terms of marketing and communication, deeper into explaining people how we are actually using this money because essentially it's not about the numbers. It's really about people understanding why they should buy this, why they should buy these prints and support this cause. But I believe that with an equal support like last year, we can hit that two and a half million number across three editions, which would be a very serious first milestone in, in like maybe widows the road to 10 million. Yeah, it's incredible. I think you touched on earlier about one of your, one of your interests is the intersection with between sort of humans and nature. And that's also a theme in terms of the wanting to support the African parks because, yeah. because if you support an ecosystem around that, which is economically viable, that sort of creates a local economy around people, tourism, and people going to experience the wildlife, then it means that the economy is working with the conservation effort. See, so one big misassumption that is still very often made by people is that in order to save animals, we should focus on animals. Right. In order to save wildlife, we should always prioritize wildlife. But we came to a point in 2022, there are so many people in the world that in order to save wildlife, we should stop worrying about wildlife and we should start caring about people's welfare and people's livelihoods. And the reason why is because in those areas where wild animals are still living wild lives, there is increasingly a growing pressure from the outside world, which is human encroachment. And if you can create places in which those humans feel safe, appreciated, respected, valued on the long term, and they start understand the benefits of what it means to protect the animals that live close to their homes rather than kill them because they see it as a threat which is a generational event. We're talking about decades of conservation being done. And that people first approach is exactly in the DNA of African parks network as an organization. They come in, they seal deals that have a long-term structure that have a very collaborative approach with local, national, regional governments. They empower local people 
to do the jobs. It's not a bunch of white guys coming in doing weird stuff. It's pe it's people coming in that really that only want local people to believe in their own future. That that want local people to believe in the future of coexisting coexistence between the animals living inside the parks and the humans living outside the parks. And that long-term approach with such a strong people first agenda is the one and only reason why we decided to to support African parks. And what's happening as soon as tourism stops is funding stops. And if funding stops, rangers are not getting paid their salaries anymore. And we're not talking in the UK or in, in mainland Europe. It's There is social welfare. There is uh, all that, that, that kind of measurements that help people as soon as you lose your job, but that's almost non-existent in Africa. And at the very same time, there is not four or five people, depending on what on a sole income earner, but 25 or 30 or 40 or 50, whole communities, right? So as soon as tourism stops and funding stops and rangers are not being paid salaries anymore, there's two things happening. There is an immediate need for money and there is like a direct harm to decades of building building that narrative around you should believe in the power of conservation, right? That is directly violated and directly harmed. But that first, that, that first impact, people losing, actually losing their jobs, that had a massive consequence in many areas where African parks is operated in, right? But luckily they manage with the support of Prince for Wildlife and the support of their donors and their donations to not even uh, fire a single ranger. They continue to pay all the salaries which keep, keeps the belief alive, right? That, that people are on the right track. But what's happening in many other regions where I work is that people were immediately losing their jobs in many different areas all across Africa, putting like a whole family at risk. And there's just an immediate disconnect from that belief that they were on, the good tr on a good track. So yeah, the impact is massive and the impact is still massive. And we're just trying to help where we can, which means that the money we are raising that 1.8 million so far has been equally distributed across the 20 parks African parks is operating in and is being used, for instance, in supporting rangers that have that have lives and families to sustain and support. It's incredibly inspiring what you, what you and Marion have created there. So when you put out the work, and I believe you have over 100 photographers and there's one image one print from each maybe do you have a sense of what's going to sell the best yeah, so by now yeah by now i do have a sense <laughs> and i have a bit of experience with selling prints myself but when we started in 2020 we were well it was an experiment what kind of work to offer very editorial very high key low key fine art there are so many terms in this business that actually don't make don't really make sense to a lot of buyers right so we just, from the, from the first minute, we decided to curate the gallery in a way that it just offers something for everyone. And we used from the first day, a good mix of very known and appreciated big names in wildlife photography combined with young emerging talent. So one of our, one of our main values ever since building this whole organization has been to, to be a platform as inclusive as possible within an industry that is not really inclusive, which is wildlife photography, but offer a platform that is as inclusive as possible when it comes to gender equality, but also especially to chances for emerging African photographers by empower, trying to empower them to tell their own stories. One of the biggest values since starting this has been to try to build an equal base between big names that are pulling power and young new emerging talents that create equally good work 
but actually never really get the stage in the audience they deserve. And that has been, that started as 50 photographers outside of my own network. That's really how it started in 2020. And it became, I'd say like a talk of town. And we grew into 175 wildlife photographers from, I believe, 68 different countries from five, six continents. And now edition three, we're trying to bring the number a little bit down because last year the, the offering, the whole paradox of choice was mm. huge. It was messy. There was at some stage, there was 240 images on offer, which is just too much. So we decided now edition three to bring down the number, which means that we're shifting our focus even more towards emerging talent by running open calls, which we just finalized this year's open call brought, I believe, 16 images from new emerging talent in which we just asked our audience, our Instagram audience, send in your best work, whatever your background is, whatever your experience level is, just send us your best wildlife image and we curate and pick winners. And last year we did it for the first time, the open call, and out of 10 open call images, five were sold out within 48 hours, which is just people nobody ever heard about. predominantly from core African markets, which is, uh, if you would ask me what makes you most proud after running Prince for Wildlife for three years, then that is it, right? It's not necessarily the numbers. It's not like, this is what really energizes me to just keep building it, to become that platform that is really about equal opportunities for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. We recently ran a print sale, for example, for Ukraine, and we focused on getting as many Ukrainian photographers as we could to be part of that. And some of those photographers were actually really surprised that of how much they sold. And then they said to themselves afterwards, okay, I can go and do that. And I can use that to develop my, use the money I make to develop my own career and to make more work. And I think that's one of the great levelers of the internet and Instagram and selling from anywhere is you can be from anywhere and you're literally on the same footing as anyone else. And, and, and it's a real eye opener for people. So I think that's fantastic. So the actual prints itself, is there any kind of pattern there that you see in terms of subject matter or anything like that? Yeah. So when it comes to wildlife, babies always work. (laughs) <laughs> of babies any species any composition any lightning as, as soon as there's a little baby elephant or a baby lion or a baby zebra so yeah that's some that's one one key takeout generally people are more about big game than about small game so rhinos elephants lions they tend to sell they tend to sell very well and other than that it really comes down to personal taste sometimes we're listing an image not really knowing whether it will take off and then it just sells out instantly but standing uh, sometimes we're taking guesses as well and just su- completely su- taken by surprise it's really random but generally speaking black and white versus color is a good 50 50 balance i'd say fine art versus editorial is more skewed towards fine art. I think when it comes to wildlife art buying, the majority of the customers are looking for graphic stuff rather than real stuff, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this year we're starting to move a bit more into editorial wildlife work, like photojournalistic wildlife work, but without human inclusion, that is a that's some rough terrain. So we're now discussing future directions, whether or not we want to start different categories outside of wildlife. Maybe we do want to start a human interest, like a people-driven category, which would open a complete new market. Because after curating 
a gallery for three years in a row now, I do find it to be harder, like increasingly harder and harder to pick good, like to pick the cherries. Right. And yeah. I mean, people are way more protective, and for a reason, people are way more protective towards their own work now than three years ago. Three years ago, everybody was understanding the immediate support that was needed because of because of COVID. And three years ago, the ninety nine percent of wildlife photographers were sitting at home without, like, jobless, just staring out of the window because nobody could travel. So as we moved into the second edition last year and now into the third edition, that people are back in the field, travel is possible. People are creating and building their own business again after not having much work for years. So yeah, the, it's changing. It's definitely changing. But we have good hopes that by maybe expanding into into different directions which could be travel photography, which could be human interest stories, but still all revenue and all funds raised are going to African charities. I think that could be a very strong way forward. Yeah, it, it never ceases to amaze me how generous photographers are with their work when charities want to put on a sale. And it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. And when you think that these images, they've spent years to acquire the talent to yeah. And they've traveled to these places and they've waited that week to get that yeah. shot yeah. and they're just willing to say yeah sure okay it's for a good cause and that is mind-blowingly generous big very big credits to the photographers that contributed over the past two and a half years because the single most strong driver of the success of prince for wildlife is the generosity of the contributing photographers Absolutely. because without that none of this would be possible right but you yeah. can run smooth this market oper marketing operation, you can build like the slickest online platform, but without those people spreading the news within their own communities. And that is, so see the success of Prince for Wildlife has been really about peer-to-peer -peer communication of photographers telling their communities, regardless of the size, big photographers and small photographers telling their top, whatever, 150, 200 peers, buy my art, and then you send money to charity. And the mm -hmm. fact that all those 275 photographers were consistently willing to do that for us has been the number one driver of all the sales. Yeah, so this goes back to something you were saying. You've effectively gone from a standing start here to, fingers crossed, within three-year period, raising 2.5 million this year in total. And to, it just would never have been possible to do that prior to social media and i think social media mm -hmm. it does quite rightly get get vilified for a lot of things which it should be vilified for but i think also we it's nice to remember actually the benefit the good side yeah, yeah the benefit. no what i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree more and and even though it is vilified all the time we should keep remembering people that when it's done right with the right spirit and the right energy and it really brings together like-minded people with like-minded dreams i think it can be one of the most one of the most powerful and it's just a, it's a new form of media right so we've been experiencing firsthand by setting up prince for wildlife the effective the effectiveness difference between traditional media and social media we've been testing it we've been working with traditional media and pr for years now and we've been testing the results coming out of it and comparing them with the results coming out of our own social media audience mind-blowing difference it's not wow. even it's not even there's not even the runner-up here it's social media that runs the show wow it's just, it's people that follow you on instagram that buy the art it's people that follow that join your newsletter which in our case is an extension of our social media strategy 
that by the art. And it's not people that, that flick through a magazine. It's not people that look on at an online website and end up, we've been measuring it for three years now and the absolute winner is social media. Wow, that's really interesting. So when you say your newsletter is an extension of your social media, how do you make it really easy to sign up to that newsletter? Yeah, so one, one I'd say trick, maybe trick, yeah, one trick, one strategy we're using in converting social media viewers into newsletter subscribers is sending out a personalized, private, a sneak peek preview print catalog that goes live two to three weeks before the event and your campaign goes live, which shows you the first 100 images, exclusive access. If you don't sign up, you'll never see that catalog, which for people is a very good reason to just simply drop their email address, sign up. We won't bother them with any marketing bullshit. They just get like a one-off email and then they, towards the start of the campaign, we start targeting them with, hey, the campaign is going live. You've been picking your favorite images. You've probably been circles, even circling them in the catalog. You've been eyeing on them for a while. This is your time to buy. And people do feel the urgency because in the past few campaigns, you saw that images were selling out really quickly. So we're really explaining people, if this is your favorite image, please be quick and buy it before anyone else, because it's going to sell out. And you do see it happening, happen that we get like lots and lots of emails of people missing out in the first 24 hours because images are gone. So by building that urgency and sending out a print catalog, that is a beautiful tool to let people engage with a sneak preview of what's to yeah. do. You, Cause it's really interesting what you said there in that some images sell out in 24 hours. And how do you communicate that to, when you send out the catalog, do you like explicitly say, look, some of these are going to go. So get your yeah, order yeah. straight yeah, away. Yeah. So our communication is really straight and simple to the point. Emails are short formats are very clean every email generally has one message so it's not like a very big long piece of text that people need to work their way through it's clear from the start within the first three seconds exactly by reading the subtitle line and the first three sentences of an email what this email is about so we do the very same thing this year we organized our first giveaway which is another beautiful tool to collect email addresses and engage people so we gave away i believe it was 10 large prints top sellers from last year that get shipped to the 10 winners randomly picked by an online selection tool. And what we did is we built a backend that operates with a software that is trying to encourage people to invite their friends to sign up because that gives them extra entries into the giveaway. So it's just another example of a tool you can use that is about giving people value in return for their email address. Yeah. And then they enter a sequence in which we really, we keep communicating clean and to the point. There is not much garbage. We don't bombard people with emails towards the start of the campaign. They get maximum one email a week, but the email has a value and the email. See, another thing we're doing now is webinars. So we're running, it's called photographer spotlight. We've been doing, I believe 25 of them now. It's still another 10, 15 to come in the upcoming weeks towards the launch in which people sign up, they leave their email address, they sign up for a webinar, they get like exclusive access to, there's 50 spots each webinar and you can ask and fire away any question you have for that particular. It's a Q&A format, it's 45 minutes. The photographer is revealing the image he or she is selling this year within the campaign. And other than that, it's all about the audience asking questions, engaging and interacting with the photographers. It will be recorded and it ends up in your email afterwards. So even if you sign up, 
uh, and you don't show up, you get the recordings. So that's three different tools we're using to just engage with our audience and give them more value, whether it's like a print you can win, an exclusive print catalog, you get access to a webinar you can attend. So we really try to offer value. This doesn't have an immediate return. No people mm -hmm. don't pay. But essentially you do get the return when you start the sales because people are really eager to buy. So those webinars are fantastic because what we see is that people really want, when they're going to put something on their wall, then their friends are coming around for dinner or whatever it is. And they're going to ask them of the image and if they have that real context and real background and they can even say, Hey, I actually chatted to the photographer and I asked him or her about the image yeah. and about this, maybe some anecdote around the trip or why they shot it or a story behind it. Then I think that just, it's such a powerful driver to, yeah. to, to, to wanting to own that print. Yeah. Yeah. It's been. Marion and my dream for the past two and a half years to have a little backstory to each and every image we're selling. But you can imagine with 175 photographers on board of which 85 to 90% works in remote places, it's really hard to get all the information in one platform. So this year we're starting with the first locations, backstories, a final quote from the person who shot it to see if we can just make that image come to life a little more. And yeah, it's an, another little experiment, but I'm sure it will, it will make people connect even more with the image or the art they're buying. And I guess you must have a lot of experience in terms of the type of questions people ask before they buy. Yeah. Yeah. Does that, does that kind of drive, does that also play into that? They want to know about what kind of things do they want to know about the art or the product or what? Yeah, so by now we do have lots of repeat buyers, but in the first edition, people were really curious about the paper quality. We've been bragging since day one about how incredible the Hahnemühle hemp, natural line hemp paper is. Hahnemühle proud sponsors as well. So from day one, we've been really talking big about how incredible that paper is. So people were just curious. And one learning for me was that the majority of the people have no clue what's fine art paper and how that looks and feels and what it is, what is it in the first place? So many questions about the paper, people were really mind blown during second edition. And we got lots of questions in the first edition about the fully carbon neutral approach of print space, right? That is really people's mind. As soon as they unfold and unpack the order at home, they do see that 100% of the materials is biodegradable which is a great asset. And one of the, one of the reasons why we decided to partner with you, because it really fits into fits beautifully fits into the narrative of protecting the natural world. And we do get lots, still lots and lots of questions about material use. And we really see that people that buy wildlife art are more aware of the inks, the papers, the packing materials, the shipping operators you work with. So that's a lot of questions. And people are also really looking for advice in terms of, so this year we really start promoting image combinations. So call it diptychs or like triptychs in which you buy one, two, three, four pieces of art that go well together. So people are really looking for some help in the curation of that, some visual help. So this year, the website for the first time is going to offer a tool well, not a tool, but it's going to offer a visual inspirational page, which I'm having on my own website as well in which you just explain people how easy it actually is to mingle 
combinations of images and create, let's say, a wall full of wildlife art mm. that goes together. So we do get lots of questions about about building those sequences. And well, there's so many people having lots of great customer services, very busy <laughs> the bloggers every year. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. It's yeah, it's, it's as you go forward, and this is what we're always saying to people who are looking to launch a store. As you go forward through doing successive print sales and time print sales and project releases and stuff like that, you learn every single time you do it. So don't try and work out everything perfectly up front and be overly, don't deliberate between shall I do this, shall I display the image this way or yeah. that way, just, just put the stuff out there and, yeah. and you get that feedback and people i think probably a lot more than a lot of products they actually do want to talk to you about the product before they buy it because it is such an emotional buying decision yeah. with art. To totally and i can speak from experience that i've been making this mistake a lot of times you just mentioned by trying to be too perfectionist and trying to remain full control and mm -hmm. trying to have the biggest offering and the most choice but in essence, I think just stripping down to the bare minimum is the best way to start selling prints, right? You, and that's what I tell people that, that ask for advice. You better start offering five prints to a bunch of friends than a hundred prints to a bunch of strangers. Hmm. And if your friends are buying it and it ends up in their homes, people come and have dinner, they ask about it. And once again, as in the beginning of this conversation, embrace the slowness of it, then one day they will come and show up and buy with you. And of course, Prince for Wildlife is a bit of a different story because of its charity structure. But if we would have been a commercial operation, we wouldn't see this. So in the first place, people come to buy, come to support and buy prints in, at Prince for Wildlife because of 100% going to charity. So that having said, the speed in which we developed in the past three years is extraordinary. But if you look at personal businesses that have not any charity incentive, then it's really good to embrace the slow speed and just test stuff and recalibrate rather than build and build for months and years and try to have this, the best looking print shop in the world, but then you don't sell. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's great advice. Now yourself and Marion, you, this obviously takes consumes all your time for months on end and it's fantastic that you've gone and done this as a kind of because we're always saying to people have a side project keep your side project within the industry and then you find sort of transferable skills have you found anything that you've learned from doing this that you've taken into selling your own work because you've got your own art store at parts.com right yeah. And have you actually learned stuff which you've taken into that? Yeah, I, so much. I can't even, I don't even know where to start. So when it comes to selling prints, after curating one of the biggest wildlife print, online print galleries in the world, of course, I know exactly what sells and what doesn't. So that in itself is, has a, a very big value. So in creating, so during COVID, I've been creating a personal print collection, which I released a few months ago, and that has been built on all foundational knowledge coming out of Prince for Wildlife. So I knew exactly what kind of emotions people are tapping into, what kind of compositions people appreciate most, if you, especially if you enter a quite a high-end price market, which I made a first big step towards a higher price point last year with this recent collection launch. And that's all built on those years of knowledge of interacting with consumers, of talking to 200 plus photographers about art, buying art. So yeah, it gave me lots of leverage when it comes to building your own 
print business. But what I did see as well is that, and that really never had been the intention since day one, is but everywhere I go in Africa, people know you're one of the two people behind Prince for Wildlife, which brings so much joy and network possibilities and connections and friendships and opportunities. And I really didn't anticipate it on the impact of that truly when I started it. But people somehow know who you are and know the intentions of the project and know the impact and the scale of it and just appreciate the whole thing, which is, is a beautiful, as I said in the beginning, when the pandemic started, me and Marion really didn't know when we could go back to the one place we love so, so much. And this really has been the past few years and has been such an enriching window in history in which I continue to build my relationships without being on ground as much as I wanted to be. So yeah, side projects, I'm a very big supporter of them uh, in many different shapes and forms. I wasn't really planning in the beginning of COVID to move so deep into wildlife photography. In fact, I was trying to move deeper into human interest stories, which I'm finally now, since the pandemic is, kind, pandemic is on its return, I'm moving back into human interest. But yeah, it just happened to me and I just moved with the flow. And it was one of the most beautiful, enriching periods in my young career. Your career in life doesn't always move in a sort of linear direction. It's, you find that there's events like the pandemic or there's just opportunities in your career that you would have liked to have gone for and it's never a straight line to where you want to go but if you're willing to always find a way to move forward in some way then you're not quite sure how it's going to benefit your career in the long run but you're doing that thing and you're throwing yourself into that thing at that point and as you said earlier, you connect the dots in reverse and you say, oh, okay, that sort of, that helped me move to the next stage of my career. How hard is it to make a, create a viable career as a photographer these days? Is it, do you think it's got harder since you started out or do you think it's got easier? No, it, it definitely got harder. It's a very competitive industry. Most people, it's a very solitary profession. So that's one thing people that, that think about maybe one day becoming a photographer, forget about, tend to forget about that it's really solitary, which means that it's just you yourself, you're celebrating your own successes, you're dealing with your own disappointments. It's so the one thing I'm missing these days is the support of a team of colleagues, which I had in my previous life every day, all day. Yeah. But other than that, it's a, it's a very competitive industry that really centralizes a lot about around winning awards, producing high quality content on a really consistent base. A social media almost makes you believe you have to put up a strong image every day. So it's a really competitive field of business. And if you can't handle that heat and that pressure, I'm not sure if it's the right choice for you. So that's one thing I have to say about it. And I've been going through ups and downs in the past few years as well when it comes to self-doubt and when it comes to uncertainty and it's lots of trial and error but i have to say that by now i found a really good way of sustaining myself which it's worth to mention that that's something i've been craving for since day one is i'm shooting nine, 90 percent of my work is free work so i'm doing only 10 percent of client work but that also really is possible because of a big share of my income is print, I'd say 50% more or less. And also because I do invest in education as well, when it comes to I'm offering masterclasses, mentorships, one-on-one -on -one group masterclasses, online mentorships, long-term, short-term, 
and which has nothing to do at all with becoming a better photographer, but it's all about sharing my knowledge and my experience with like-minded people. And that gave me a substantial income to keep investing in telling my personal stories, my free work stories, and disconnect from doing client work. There's nothing wrong with client work, but that my highest value as an artist is freedom. That is my most important value. And it's really the toughest value to acquire. But by focusing on like projects, like Prince for Wildlife, but by also focusing 20, 30% of my time on building educational formats rather than being in the field, I allowed myself to keep investing in, in, in my own narrative and my own stories I believe in. Mm -hmm. So I totally believe it's possible for everyone. It's hard work. It's like a 24 seven, it really never ends. The learning curve, I believe also never ends, but it's possible. Yeah, it's definitely possible. Uh, as a final question. So if you could give yourself some advice when you started what 15, 17 years ago, what would you say to yourself with the knowledge that you have now? Yeah, I think what's really important in, in building this dream as or dream or life as a photographer is to, and I believe I mentioned this briefly already is try to turn inwards rather than outwards. Question yourself, why do you want to pick up that camera in the first place? And that's a question I only started asking myself three, four years back after shooting for 10 years, but I never really understood the power of it and the simplicity of it by just going back to the beginning, back to the drawing board and try to put that answer on one single sheet of A4 paper. Right, because you can you can write you can easily write books about it, but try to be really brief. Like, why do you want to pick up a camera? Why do you want to tell story X, Y, Z? Why do you want to convince people to believe in something you believe in? Then, if you go back to the essence of of understanding that yourself, then it becomes really easy to convince other people to believe in the same dreams, to convince clients to buy your work, to convince art galleries to list your work, to convince people that buy your books to keep buying them. And I do see lots of people trying to create something that taps into the needs and expectations of your environment. And when I started to understand that there is only one expectation that matters, and that's your own expectations of your own life as a human photographer, God knows what, that's where change and start and progress and realizing dreams is happening. Thank you for an incredibly insightful interview and we wish you the best of luck with Prince for Wildlife which launches on the 28th of yeah. August and in the show notes and the and the blog piece about this we'll we'll also put a link to Prince for Wildlife so people can sign up for the for the pre-sale catalog as well but yeah P thank you very much for your time today really appreciate it thank you Stuart thank you Stuart